Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And today I'm getting a chance to chat with my friend Laresha Kugel, who works at ESU 9 as an MTSS facilitator and instructional coach. Uh, and today, also wearing the hat of a proud mom, as we are going to have a conversation about enhancing educator perspective as it pertains to learners with autism. And so this is a topic that I know Laracia has been able to present at conferences and around the state on, and it's a, a conversation that I'm excited to learn from her as a part of. And so I, I do want to say from the top as a disclaimer, sometimes when we talk about things pertaining to special education, which is not my training or my background, if I ever misspeak, I hope that it's just in the spirit of being a learner, right? And that's what I hope for myself uh, and for anyone that's listening in today, uh, a little bit of grace as we have a conversation that I think is a really important one. And I'm so grateful to Laracia for joining us. So thanks for taking the time to advocate. Laracia, for people who don't know you, can you give us a little bit of an introduction? Yes, I am Laracia Kugel, as he mentioned, MTSS facilitator and instructional coach at ESU 9. But my favorite hat here is going to be Proud Mom. I am a mom to two boys. My eldest is Dawson. He's seven. My youngest is Camden, and he is five. He's five this month. So, um, and my oldest, Dawson, he was identified about three years ago being on the autism spectrum. Uh, and at that time, is it correct that you were in the classroom still or frame that, I guess, within your time uh, as a classroom practitioner? Yeah. So I am actually in my 13th year in education. Ten of those years I was in the classroom and I was teaching for about five years before I became a mom. So I taught kindergarten and then was still teaching. I was teaching third grade when we went through the identification process for Dawson. So I had had quite a few years and experiences in my back pocket prior to learning how to wear that hat as a mom. And I, so I have two kiddos myself. I have an 11 year old daughter and I have an eight year old son. And when I talk sometimes uh, about education, I pull from my experience as a dad. And sometimes even in the classroom, I found that there was the opportunity for what I just call like a beautiful reciprocity, right? Where like work life, uh, is instructive at home, and sometimes home is instructive for work life. And so uh, I know that's part of your story with this as well. Can you start to make some of those connections for us as far as being a mom to a son who is on the autism spectrum? How did that sort of impact you as a teacher? Yeah, you know, in my my first life, right before kids, when I was a teacher, I always had a passion for students with varying needs and learning through supporting them. And I had one student who just sticks out to me and really helps bridge those connections for me through both lives. It, his name was Bastion, and he was just a joy. Like he was like this bright, bubbly kid. He would say the funniest things. And I just loved having him in my, in my classroom. And the part that really helped me grow as a teacher and a person was just that that was a lot of work to keep him in the classroom, to keep his needs met 
to make sure that his behavioral needs didn't take away and take him out of the classroom. And so I got a lot of tools in my toolbox because he was so smart and still is uh, so smart that he would outsmart our strategies. And so we had to keep learning new ones. (laughs) And I think where that really merges with my current life is I see so much of my son in him when he was a kindergarten, when he was in my class, I just see so many similarities. And I started thinking about it as a mom and how I communicated with his mom. And we had a very positive and, you know, great relationship. We teamed a lot, but I think there are things I would have been more sensitive about or more knowledgeable or shared more about certain things that I didn't consider would benefit at home. And so that's really where my two worlds merge. Well, I'd ask, I guess, maybe for an example, right? So you were talking a little bit about how a strategy might work for a season and then it would need some revamping. Can you give us like an example of what that might mean for somebody who uh, might have a tough time thinking through that in a practical sense? Absolutely. Uh, I even think about taking breaks, right? I am a huge advocate for breaks uh, because the reality is if we don't provide a break for our students, they take it anyway. Uh, they'll, They'll find a way. It might be a mental break. They might have aggression or behaviors. They'll take the break. And so the, the thing was finding that buy-in. So what is a break that Bastion's actually going to work for? And so sometimes he would work for time to just read And then there were times that reading wasn't cutting it. And we had to figure out what need is he having that do we need to meet? And so we would come up with a break menu and not just similar activities, right? They can't all be fine motor activities. We have to have a gross motor option and we have to have a fine motor option and we have to have a relaxing option and just understanding more about what are his breaks telling us he needs And so learning to kind of fly with it so that those breaks were still intentional to him, even though I had to keep coming up with different ways to meet his needs in that. That's interesting to think not only about the strategies, but then what those strategies suggest about his emotional state at a given moment in time and what that would kind of signify. And so it sounds like then that you found that to be true also of experiences in support of your son. Absolutely. I really going through that. I now really look at my son's behaviors, any positive, negative, all of those. What are they telling us that he needs or are his needs met? And really giving the teachers that understanding and, and in my role as an instructional coach, when I say, well, this is what the behavior looks like, but let's step, take a step back. What happened right before that behavior and what sensory piece could that be? Or I see that right now he's tensing his muscles. So that's telling me that he needs some stimulation. He needs some physical stimulation. My son likes um, firm scratches on the back. And so a lot of times when I see that he's tensing up, I'll give him firm scratches on the back. And we've ha- we've taught him to verbalize that. Even stemming, I really started to understand stemming's not a bad thing. That's their body outwardly stimulating themselves and, and helping their senses regulate. 
And so, you know, my son doesn't do a ton of stimming, but when he would, I would say, okay, what are you feeling right now? And really he only does it when he's excited. So I let him because excited is not a bad feeling. It's not something I want to go in and squash. But I think the time that we look at stemming is when it's a negative feeling and we want to adjust it. So they don't feel that negative of feeling, not necessarily. So they stop stemming. So just really understanding what are their body signals they're telling us, like they, they're showing us all the time, but a lot of times that looks like negative behavior, but their body's just trying to regulate in our world. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to show that I don't have a ton of training in this area, but I will say uh, for anyone who's curious, can you explain what stemming is? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times stemming might look like um, it's just a repeated motion generally like with the body. So a lot of times that looks like hand flapping is probably the most common stemming, but it could look like just doing a repeated motion that is really getting um, some kind of sensory stimulation. Um, sometimes students will tap their heads or twist their hair. It's just that repeated motion to try to regulate. Uh, and I love that you make the distinction there between trying to read whether or not that is something that is indicative of a positive uh, or something that might need some support because uh, it might show that there's some maybe emotional dysregulation going on in a, in a certain uh, instance. And so so with all that being said, then obviously this has shaped your support uh, as an instructional coach and your time in the classroom. Uh, and I'd love for the podcast to really capture some of the maybe things that you wish you would have known at that time or that you would like to impart to education? Because that's what you get a chance to present on with this, right? Is that kind of the aim of those sessions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really bring it back to tiered supports um, and that I'm wearing my MTSS hat there of what can we provide? What do all students get? And then how would that look for those individual students, their individual needs? And just really emphasizing that even when we adjust and we add additional supports for tier two, tier three levels, that they still have access to good core instruction. A lot of times, some of these strategies like more visual cues and schedules and routines, those are good for everyone. As an adult, as a neurotypical adult, I thrive on that. <laughs> and so I think that a lot of times, if we put those supports in place at the core level, no matter what the grade, the class thrives on that. So I try to do that, a lot of modeling. And I think that when I can explain it in both perspectives, I, I kind of feel like I get street cred. Like people are willing to say, okay, okay, she lives this day in and day out. Uh, let's try it. But it's been very fulfilling to go in. Um, sometimes it's working directly with just observing the student and saying, I'm seeing that they're doing this, maybe try that or observing the teacher and saying, okay, when, when we're saying this, it's very abstract. How can you make that very concrete for them or put a visual so that those words always mean the same thing. And it's just a communication error. And so what I wish I knew is just one, when you know one person on the spectrum, you know, one person on the spectrum, it's not a one size fits all it varies because their needs vary. But I also wish I know, knew and something that I try to really emphasize is so many times we 
teach those with needs or those on the spectrum, those who don't understand our world, don't live in our world. We teach them how to live in our world, but we never teach our world how to live in theirs. And so I think, how can we embrace their world? How can we use those strengths? They have my son, I'm a biased mom by all means, but my son is brilliant and he has like this vast knowledge of animals and the world and how he thinks about the world because of, and he's seven. (laughs) And, and I just think like, if we could all just embrace that and say, yeah, this is more work, but look at what they're adding to it. I just wish I want to give that. And I wish I maybe had that perspective more as a teacher, instead of this is one more thing. It was look at the gifts this child is bringing into our classroom. Oh, that resonates with me so much. I, uh, in my last year of teaching had a student who I'm just going to refer to him as Joe. It's not his name, but I'll just refer to him as mm-hmm. Joe for sake of anonymity. And Joe, when he was interested in what was going on, um, would give his full effort and demonstrated his brilliance. As you said, it was incredibly intelligent and good at remembering facts and details. Uh, And we got to a place just before uh, the lockdown, actually, where we were entering into a unit where it was a a nonfiction unit. And so students got some say in what book they wanted to select. Uh, and we were really fortunate that he had the opportunity or or that I was kind of pointed towards a book that I recommended to him that he ended up pursuing called The Reason I Jump. Are you familiar with that book? I am not. So The Reason I Jump was written actually by a guy named David Mitchell, who was capturing the voice and experience of a Japanese student who uh, was a 13-year-old boy with autism. Uh, and so finding a way to take that life experience um, that this young boy had and then convey that through the text in a way that others could access it. It gave just a lot of examples that for Joe just landed really well and became familiar. And I I bring it up at this point because Laracia, as you're sharing, uh, it gave him like empathy and access to someone else saying the things that he was already feeling. And that brought uh, the two worlds together to use your language, I think. And it was, um, it was a really power and he, he was locked in. <laughs> he was committed so wholeheartedly to that whole learning and that reading and every assignment that went in, uh, that went with it, that was really inspiring. It's, and I love that you said, just built that empathy and, and merged the worlds. I, I talk a lot when I, you know, I have two boys and I say, I talk about this. I spread this message, not just for Dawson, because of course, of course, it's very easy to see why I'm doing this with Dawson, but I want my youngest, I want Cam to grow up and be in a world and be in a classroom where he observes those with needs that he doesn't have with those needs being met. Like that's where we build empathy. That's where we build compassion. That's where we build equity. It has to happen early. And, you know, I understand that my neurotypical son isn't going to get things that other kids need and good. That's good. I think my son on the spectrum needs to, you know, see that too. We all have different needs, but I think it's so important to embrace that and, and to show that and, and how beautiful there's a book and that he could then like rock it and share his story through another person's story. That's amazing. 
Yeah, and he made it a point too to compare and contrast because I very much to your points to this point, right, is everyone with autism experiences that a little bit differently. And so there were certain things that felt very familiar in their experience, but there were also parts that were uh, that were not. And so he commented on those points of contrast to his own personal experience as well. Uh, and it was fun too. There, there came a point, and I'm sorry, storytelling here, Laracia. So don't we get on it? But I love, I love Joe, and I love what yeah. he ended up doing here. But we went into lockdown. We didn't have a chance to connect, and so he decided to put together a website to advocate or, and to inform other people uh, about autism and using the book as kind of a launching point for that. And so he even included things like a list of the top ten celebrities with autism. Uh, and we were so fortunate to get to a point where uh, we reached out actually to David Mitchell, who wrote the book uh, and got a chance to connect and let those two uh, talk a little bit as well um, to make some content that ended up on his website. And so really like rich experience in the oh, midst of a tough time. It. And it, uh, yeah, it really filled my heart to be quite honest uh, at, oh, that, oh. at that time. It's filling my heart. I love that yeah. story. Joe was awesome. <laughs> Go Joe. Yep. <laughs> but oh, uh, but with that being said, a point that you and I have talked about prior to recording today, I was grateful to the support that his parents provided and the influence that they had on us pursuing those avenues, even um, as alternative assignments. And so I know that's one of your uh, things that you advocate for is that uh, parent-teacher collaboration. Absolutely. And, that you know, it's not new news that we know kids succeed more when the school and homework together. But something I wanted to do, you know, as we sat in the MDT and we sat with the IEP and we talk about supports for him, one, my first job there is to be an advocate. And a powerful experience I had as a first year teacher was I was sitting in an IEP and I was nervous because. I was a first year teacher and I knew everything and a parent, you know, these parents were intimidating. And I just remember the special ed teacher looked at them and she's like, you are such strong advocates for your child. And I was like, oh my God, it's not against me. It's not about me. It's about this child. And I, I'm in my 13th year. It still just sticks out to me. And I bring that with me into those IEPs. I'm here to support the school. Yes. But first and foremost, my job is to advocate for my child. And what does the data say? Like, that's my MTSS hat. Like, what does the data say that he needs? And sometimes, you know, that means that I have to send an email and say, hey, I see that he has been getting 70% on his assessments. And if he has an IEP that tells us there's some ports that aren't there, you know, and then I, and then I dig more. Okay. Do you think it's a time on task? Do we need to work on a behavior support? What do we need to, you know, is it a situational piece? Is he distracted or does he truly not know the information? What can I do at home to support that? Uh, is there any additional supports or extra practices that we can put in place? Where is that barrier? Because those two supports look completely different. And really emphasizing, asking those intentional questions, but also never placing blame. Because I know I, my son has an amazing team. I'm not going to say anything besides that because they just have done they're just amazing. They just have such a huge place in my heart. And as he moves up grades, like the teachers all embrace him. He just hasn't had a teacher that hasn't embraced and loved him. And so I don't want to 
ever for them to feel like I don't think that they're not loving my child or doing what they know is best. I just want to guide and say, maybe this would work, or this is maybe what I'm seeing, or here are some questions. But I say like the role of being like that mom, sometimes I'm that mom. I get it. (laughs) But also just being cognizant of my teacher hat too, that I don't, I've worked with difficult parents in the past that were rude and hurtful and mean. And I, I would never do that with anyone. I think being kind is just a general good rule to follow, but also offering supports where I can sending thank you cards. Like it doesn't take much, but just thanking them. It is extra work. My son's support is extra work and I'm aware of that. And as a teacher, I did that, but I appreciate it. So I think just whatever you can do to keep that bond open, transparency, speak positively about school, about your child's teachers, because especially those on the spectrum, there's no filter. They're not sure when it's uh, you know socially appropriate to share those things. They bring those things to school. But I think as positive as you can be, even if your personalities don't mesh, follow back on advocating for your child, doing best with what your child is. And what does the data say? Our hearts tell a different story than the numbers sometimes when we have to really follow the numbers. Wow. And there's so much to kind of unpack in there, right? Yeah, that's a lot. I loaded you up. Sorry. No, no, no. (laughs) When when those relationships, uh, I mean, first and foremost, right, they need to be healthy and positive, as you said, and everyone needs to presume positive intentions, even when it starts to get a little bit pointed towards things that could change or or need to be implemented. And the catalyst for those changes can come from a lot of different places, I would assume. And so maybe this will guide us towards a question would be to say, some of the contributions from the parents might be, hey, here's some strategies that have worked in the past, where additionally, I would imagine a classroom teacher who's been teaching for some time uh, might have their own that where they could suggest those also. And I'm sure it's just like parenting always is the second you find a solution is about the time that it shifts changes and you need a different one. (laughs) So um, there's going to be a need for to pivot and to have those ongoing collaborative conversations as the learner grows and situations change. Uh, and that, um, yeah, so if it's not muddled enough, then plays out a pr- across a number of fronts, I would imagine as well, like academic, behavioral, you know, those kind of things. And so which is um, all of that is to say that this is a collaboration <laughs> that needs a, a lot of detail and attention, right? Yeah. And something you just mentioned made me think of, um, I try to carry over what the school does to honor the time and, you know, respect the strategies and, and help support those, especially when Dawson was really working on just getting regulated, figuring out what he needed. But um, I was just talking to a teacher the other day and she said, their parents keep saying they don't see this behavior at home. And that's so frustrating. And I said, I'll be honest, I didn't see the behavior at home either because this is where their sensory needs are met. There are quiet places. There are things they're used to. There, It's different. Home and school are different. We can collaborate. But I think that that perspective was something that it really could not be happening at home. That's not always the parent in denial. At times that can be play a piece. I get that. And it's hard 
to come to terms that your child has differing needs than others. However, if you're meeting those needs at home and they're chill, their their senses and their emotional needs are met, you might not be seeing those. They're also not sharing one adult with 20 of their peers who also make noises and have sensory needs and have behavioral needs. So I just think about that collaboration between what's working at school and, and communication with that. This is what we're trying and being open on both ends to trying different things and just modifying them for the different locations. A social story is going to look different at home where I can do a, how does dinosaur, how do dinosaurs play with their friends? And it might be a more of a board maker social story at, at school or pictures with their peers. So I think collaboration, flexibility, and communication above all else. And in the midst of that, and so I ask this as a question, I would imagine that maybe not initially, but over time, and maybe to some degree initially, but over time, having the learner advocate for what they need themselves or being able to learn how to regulate those behaviors or signal that they're starting to feel certain behaviors that can trigger strategies, right? And so uh, it is uh, imperative, I'm sure, to have parents, teachers, everyone on board trying to be reflective to the moment and responsive to the needs. Um, But could you speak a little bit to also teaching the student to own their portion of that collaboration? Absolutely. Our main goal in education, right, is to teach and support students to become independent people in our community. And there has to be a point where we do give students and children and adults the opportunity to advocate for their needs. That's something my husband and I really try to do with Dawson. And we we really try to respect that if we can. Uh, there might be times he'll say, I I I don't think we can go to that activity that will be really overwhelming or this is what I'm nervous about. And we'll talk through, this is what it will look like. This is who will be there. But we let him advocate for himself. The same thing as, as I mentioned earlier, he's generally understimulated that um, he usually craves sensory input. And so letting him really advocate that he needs back scratches and saying to adults, if he asks for a back scratch, that's okay. You can provide that if you feel comfortable. And and it's great. This is what I love. Like I said, it builds empathy and, and compassion. Cause now my five-year-old, if um, say I'm cooking dinner and Dustin's like, I need a back scratch. He'll be like, I'll scratch your back Dustin. <laughs> and he'll scratch his back because he knows that that's what he needs. And he really does do a beautiful job advocating for himself and he's seven. And so I just think it's never too young. Kids aren't too young to start advocating for themselves. They really do it. They just do it in ways that we don't see appropriate all the time. So if we could teach them how to show it in appropriate ways and then reinforce when they get that stimulation they need with that positive signal, it's so empowering. Oh, that so brings a smile to my face because I think of my own son with that. I try to be attuned to their love languages for those that are familiar with that. And for my son, physical touch is one of those. And so what used to present itself as him maybe being frustrated or angry and demonstrating those kind of behaviors, he's grown to a point where he can now um, at least articulate like, 
and he'll just like run into me and like like lean his head in because he needs a hug right you know what i'm talking about oh yeah <laughs> and, oh i totally get it uh yeah or he'll just come sit in my lap instead of like getting like incredibly frustrated and uh it is so nuanced because there might be another kiddo who that is the absolute last thing that they would need the moment that they're frustrated <laughs> you try to put your arms around them uh and i think we all um there's a benefit to that kind of sensitivity to the unique needs for everyone and um, empowering people to understand that about themselves and advocate for those towards independence uh, and harmony amongst the people that they are, whether they're working with or living with is really important. So um, gosh, we say it each every week, half hour goes really, really fast, Laratia. And so um, <laughs> I'm grateful that we've had a chance to explore this topic and think about what it means to support like I was just saying there a moment ago, everyone, um, but particularly students who are on the autism spectrum who might need something a little bit different, I would say sometimes, uh, like a back scratch, for example. Uh, and so uh, as we bring our conversation to a close, if you had to um, either provide a call to action or maybe put a bow on today's conversation, and what would be the number one takeaway you'd have people leave this conversation with? The number one thing that I hope people take away and and modify to their world to their life is just understanding the whole perspective understanding the perspective of the child first and foremost uh, but uh, of their teacher and the hard work they put in and the parent and the hard work they put in uh, we are all advocates for that child including that child as you mentioned so just really always keeping that perspective in as we support, as we love, as we care for children in our world, as we care for each other in our world and, and taking that and going forward with just openness and kindness. Well, I absolutely love that message. And that's certainly something that uh, I hope resonates with all of us as we move to the spring semester. And so, Laratia, uh, you're a rock star. Thank you so much for everything that you do <laughs> in support you. of uh, ESU 9 schools and also uh, just in education in Nebraska broadly. It's, it's always great to get a chance to chat and collaborate with you. So thanks for joining us on the pod Same. today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. 